We're starting a, a brand new series today called The Messenger. And it is really, over the next several weeks, we are going to be talking about how God's message was formed in the New Testament. It was from, from God, given by God, with Jesus laying the groundwork and foundation, really fulfilling things that had been said already for hundreds of years or more. And then God uses a particular man. It's amazing how the scriptures are, are written by people, inspired by God, yet and inspired, led by the Holy Spirit, and yet God allows their personalities to come and be part of this. And it was the shaping of the messenger that really helped bring about the message. What is the message? Very simple. The, the message is what is referred to as the gospel. The word gospel means good news. We have good news as a people today. We have good news. God has sent his one and only son into the world. And his one and only son came into the world and died on the cross for our sins. It was a gift of God. It was a gift of his grace. And then his son did not stay dead. But rather three days later, he resurrected that we might have eternal life. That we might have life to the full. That is the amazing gospel message of God, that his son himself came into this world, into the brokenness of the world to put it all back together again. That's the core message. It shows up in Ephesians chapter one, where the scriptures say, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The plan of God has been in this broken world, even though sin has tried to mess it up, it cannot mess up the plans and purposes of God. God's plan is to put the whole thing back together again. And so God's son enters into the emotional, the physical, the relational brokenness of this world. He enters into the societal, into the cultural brokenness of this world. God's restoration plan doesn't leave any part of this world untouched. There's no part of this world that is too far gone from the grace of God. A free and undeserved gift. The very definition of grace. God's grace is designed to cover over every part of our lives. Even what are deemed as some of the worst sins, whatever it might be, covered by the grace of God. Grace creates wholeness where there has only been brokenness. Grace covers the darkest parts of our lives, the darkest parts of this world. In the worst of circumstances, God's grace can be found. That has to be why the writer of Romans 8 says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love and grace of God covers all and conquers all today. That's the message. That's the message that we're here to celebrate. That's the message that we're here to be inspired by. That's the message that we worship God for. It's the message that we are sent out to places like Alaska to give away. It's the message that we're sent out to places like your neighborhood, your ball field, where you work to give away. There's not a person on this planet who doesn't need the grace of God. And there's not a person on this planet that the grace of God has not been made available to. And it doesn't just speak to afterlife. It speaks to everyday life. That's what's so amazing about grace. It's radical. It's life-changing. 
So how does this radical, life-changing, all-encompassing grace become such a huge part of the message of the New Testament? Well, it was God's plan from the very beginning. But very simply, God sent a messenger who understood his need for saving grace perhaps more than anyone who's ever received it. And he would come to understand throughout the course of his life his need for grace on days when he would not have made it without it. He understood grace more than anyone else. We first meet the messenger in Acts 7. Acts 7 is about a young man from the early church named Stephen. He's a young leader and and he's been put in charge of the church, doing all kinds of things, serving others, serving people in the church. And, and he's challenged in Acts 7. And Stephen begins to preach. And he begins to preach in such a way against the, the Jewish rulers of the day that they all begin to get very, very angry at him. He's very pointed with them that they actually crucified Jesus, that they crucified the Savior. And as we get to the end of Stephen's message, he is on fire with this talk. And he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they, the Jewish leaders, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen would have been a great messenger. He's a powerful guy. He just gives this talk. If you read it in your group this week or if you read it on your own time, he gives this talk that walks all the way through the Old Testament and points people to Jesus. He would have been a great messenger, but that's not the messenger we were just introduced to. These people are so excited that they have killed this young man. They flaunt it. They celebrate it. They lay his garments at the feet of a young guy named Saul a first century, soon after Jesus has gone back to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, a man who is killing and imprisoning Christians. He is a brutal killer, and he is on the path of becoming the number one messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't even know it yet. Acts chapter 8 says Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Verse 3 says, Saul continued. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And he's on the path of becoming the messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter where you are today, what your circumstances are, this man is an example that none of us are ever too far gone. You may be coming in here today thinking you're, you're way too far gone. The issues, the circumstances, maybe even the sin in your life leaves you far from God. You say, you know, the things that I've got in my life, I'm coming here to maybe because someone invited you or because someone else brought you here and it's just kind of something you check off the list every day. But, but honestly, the things in your life you believe are too far from the grace of God. Nothing, no circumstance, no sin is ever too far, too far gone from the grace of God. There's no doubt that there's children being raised by people other than their parents as a result of this man who would become the messenger. If you've ever been the kind of person to just make fun of Christ, to thumb your nose at God, to make fun of the message, 
then maybe you also can relate to this man who would become the messenger. If you ever thought you had it all figured out and maybe you have people really impressed with your arguments, with your debating skills, with with how you come across, then maybe you can also result to this messenger. It goes even further than that, truly with this guy. If you've ever planned or plotted evil and then carried it out, then you also can relate to this man who would be the messenger. Acts chapter nine picks back up with the story of Saul and it says this, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He had full authority to arrest people of the way. He says, what What does that mean? Well, before people were called Christians, they were just known as people of the way. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's how they were known. Only through Jesus is salvation made possible. These are the followers of the way, the people who believe that with all their heart. The messenger would later on write in Titus chapter two, verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. No one would understand the appearance of God's grace more than this man after the next few moments. He's on his way to Damascus and Acts chapter nine, verse three, if you're following along, if you'd like to follow along today, turn right there, Acts chapter nine and verse three. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The voice answered, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter into the city and there you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard a voice. Really, they just heard a noise. They didn't understand, but they saw no one. And Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. He's on his way to Damascus, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a place that when things weren't going great in Jerusalem for any group of people, this was a a city that for whatever reason people were drawn to go to. 100 miles away perhaps felt like it was far away from any of the trouble that might be in Jerusalem. History would actually tell us that later on 10,000 Jews would be killed in Damascus. And now here we are in the early church and the persecution is beginning From this guy named Saul, he is the ringleader. And so there are Christians in this city and he is on his way. This brutal, angry man is on a mission to imprison and we know he'll kill if he's given the opportunity. And then he stopped in his tracks. And then he has an unexpected encounter on the road. He comes in some ways really, you could say face to face. With Jesus himself, a sudden light, a fall to the ground, and a voice. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He says as he's been instantly blinded. For Lord, he uses the Greek word kurios. It just means master or sir. 
Who are you? Who has done this to me? It's Jesus, the one you've been persecuting. This proud man has instructed them to go on into the city and he's having to be led by the hands now by people who most likely otherwise were intimidated to even be around him. How humiliating, how humbling has it been for this guy? He was on his way to kill people who were followers of the way. And on the road, he discovers that Jesus takes very seriously what happens to his people. From the very beginning of the shaping of the man who would become known as the Apostle Paul, that's who Saul would be, he would know that no matter how difficult things would get, that Jesus was always close by. Nothing happens apart from his sight or his knowledge. He's always in control. It was the very first thing he learned from that moment on the Damascus road. He also learned something else that we can all learn from this. God knows your name. He knows what you've been up to for good or for evil. And you are never too far gone. You're never too far gone. What must those next few moments have been like? People around him have no idea what happened. He really doesn't even know. Perhaps he said nothing. One author and pastor, Chuck Swindoll, said he must have just shaken his head for days, trying to sort out what just happened in his life. And I love what's going on in Damascus. Maybe at the same time or maybe just a few moments after, there's a man there by the name of Ananias. And the scriptures say in Acts chapter 9 that Jesus also speaks out to Ananias. And Ananias answers like he knows to do from his reading of the Old Testament. He gives the same answer that Abraham, Moses, Samuel, and Isaiah and others have, have given when he hears his name, when he hears God call Ananias. Ananias responds, here I am, Lord. I'm ready. What is it that you have for me? And Jesus tells him, I want you to go to another part of the city. I want you to find the house of a man named Judas. It's on Straight Street. We would know that that was basically the, the main street of the town. And what I'd like for you to do there is I'd like for you to lay your hands on Saul and I want you to help his sight be restored. It's interesting, Ananias has had this great response. God, what do you want me to do? I'm all in. And then when he finds out, there's a little bit of dialogue, just so you know. In fact, in Eugene Peterson's account in the message, he translates Ananias's further response as, Master, are you serious? I mean, this is basically a Jew being asked to go visit Hitler. I mean, that's what's happening. Seriously, you want me to go visit that guy? And Jesus says, seriously, it goes like this, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul was a chosen instrument of God before he even knew it. He is known at this point as Saul of Tarsus. And modern day Tarsus would be found in Turkey. In the ancient world, it was a, a very key City. It's near the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a port area. That's a, it's a very high cultural area. It's a trade route. It's a trade route that led from, from Rome on one side all the way to the Orient. 
He would have, growing up in that city, he would have spoken Greek. He probably could get around a little bit in Latin. He would understand that. But more important than anything else to this family living in Tarsus is that they were Jewish. In fact, later on, he would describe himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. His father is a Pharisee, the most strict keepers of Jewish laws. Historian John Pollock tells us that we believe that Saul's mother died around the age of nine or ten but he really wasn't to live at home very long anyway. He was on the path to becoming a teacher himself. And as a teenager, he was sent to Jerusalem to learn under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, who we learn about in Acts chapter five. Gamaliel is the grandson of a man that to this day is one of, is considered one of the greatest teachers in Jewish history. And Paul is to learn under him. At this point in his life, he has got all the laws of the Old Testament memorized. He's memorized Psalms and Proverbs and he's probably beginning to work on the prophets in the Old Testament. Listen, he is not just on the path of becoming a good teacher. Saul of Tarsus is being groomed to be the best of the best. He would have been living in Jerusalem for around a dozen years or so when he would begin to hear, along with all the other Pharisees in Jerusalem, they would begin to hear about this little teacher in this kind of know-nothing area around Galilee who was, whose name was Jesus, who some people were even daring to say he might be the Messiah. Paul would think, what a blasphemer. Paul would want blood. He would be angry. Long before the Damascus Road, this man, Saul of Tarsus, who would become known to us as the Apostle Paul, was wrestling with the teachings of Jesus. You say, how do you know that? Well, in Acts chapter 6, Acts, excuse me, Acts 26, he's standing before King Agrippa, and he actually shares more of what happened on the road. In your group this week, I hope you would read all of Acts 26. He gives us a lot more. Look at what Jesus says to him. Something else he has said to him there on the Damascus road. In Acts 26 verse 14 says, when he had fallen to the ground, actually when we had all fallen to the ground, the whole group that's with him, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I don't know when the last time is you used that phrase. I had to look it up just so you know. What's a goad? Well, it's a cattle prod. In the first century, if you're trying to get your ox to move, you hit it with the goad. And an ox is kind of a thick-skinned, stubborn animal. It's no wonder Jesus used this illustration with Saul. And you have to take a thick-skinned, stubborn animal, and to get it to move, you can't just whack it on the side. A goad has a sharp point to it. You have to poke it. You poke it, and the ox doesn't like to be poked. I don't like to be poked. I understand the ox just for a moment. So what would an ox do? It would kick against the goad, ultimately probably trying to kick at the person who's got the stick in their hand. Basically, what Jesus says to him on the Damascus Road Saul, Saul, how long are you going to resist me? How long are you going to kick against me? He would have heard Jesus' teachings years and years before this. And yet he became a brutal murderer, really believing that he was in some ways defending God, not understanding the plan of God at this point, but he had been resistant to the Savior for years and years and years. And it's important to point out because I know in this church every week, there's some of you like that in this room. You've been kicking against him for a long time. 
you've been resisting him for a long time. And just like he has said to Saul, he's saying to you again today, how long are you going to kick against this seriously? How long are you going to resist me? You say, the stuff that I'm involved in, the, the sin in my life, the parts of my life that are there's things that I do, they're not God things. They're not part of church stuff. You're never too far gone from the grace of God. You're never too far gone from the grace of God. Maybe you're here as a Christ follower today and God's been calling and asking you to to do something for a while. It could be as simple as walking next door and share an act of kindness or share God's love, intentionally saying it's God's love with a neighbor or with someone down the street or with someone at work or if you're a student, maybe someone in school here and time is coming to an end. You've got like four Mondays left before school is out and you're all rejoicing about that. But in the meantime, God is saying, listen, I have someone I've been putting on your heart throughout this whole entire year. How long are you going to resist this? How long are you going to kick against me? And in a few moments, as Jesus reveals himself to Saul, he would become the center of his life. And from that time on, he was motivated by a grace that he knew he couldn't earn or deserve on his best day. It's no wonder why he would say later, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. It's no wonder he said it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But listen to the rest of this because this testimony is available to all of us. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but listen, but the grace of God that is with me. He says things like this over and over and over again. He cannot get over his wretchedness and the grace of God. He would go on to write 13 letters in the New Testament, 13 books of the New Testament, filled with this message of grace, filled with this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. It, it kind of sounds like him. So he maybe wrote 14. By all accounts, the most important thing that he wrote is the book of Romans. So many people have sat with Romans throughout at some point in their life, and it's absolutely changed them. People like a man named Augustine in AD 386. He's a native of North Africa. He's been a teacher at a local university in Milan. And one day he, he hears a, a child singing in a courtyard next to him, take up and read, take up and read. The child's singing a song about something else entirely. And the scroll next to him is the book of Romans. He picks it up. He reads one line from the book of Romans and the church gets St. Augustine, who would become a early church framer of our theology. In November 1515, a priest named Martin Luther picked up the book of Romans, and he studied it every day for almost a year. Night and day I pondered it, he said, and it absolutely changed him. At 8.45 p.m. on May 24th, 1738, a man named John Wesley was listening to someone give a talk, just an overview, a preview of the book of Romans, and he said, I myself felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt and did trust that Christ and Christ alone was there for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, even mine. You're never 
too far gone. Over the course of these next several weeks, as we study the life of the messenger, the Apostle Paul together. I want to invite you to do something with us. We are posting up later on today and this week on our social media pages on Facebook a little 30-day plan to read through the book of Romans like some of these great early church fathers did. I would invite you to do it. Everybody can do this. This is, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to do this. Just pick up a Bible or turn on your iPhone or whatever you got and, and just read with us 14 or 15 verses every day of this book that absolutely has transformed the church and many, many lives over the years. It's in this book that the apostle Paul says things like, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God through whom we have received grace. Romans 3, he tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The man who knew the laws of God more than anybody else would say, for sin will have no dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. And when talking about salvation, he would say, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. And you're never too far gone to receive it. And my hope is that over the next few weeks of this series, just as God used his message to shape this unlikely messenger so that his message could be delivered, that his grace would shape you in ways that it's never shaped you before, that his grace would shape your home, it would shape your marriage, that it would shape your, your, the way you parent your kids, that it would shape your relationships, the way you handle your finances, the way you handle the most difficult circumstances, that ultimately it would shape the way you view the world. After all, it's the lens through which God views you. It's his grace. And Paul writes of a grace that goes way beyond just making itself available to us for salvation, but rather it's a grace that's available in our everyday lives. There's a story of a young lady who lives outside of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And she, one afternoon, she's kind of rebellious and in her later teens, and she says to her mom, I'm out of here. Blowing this popsicle stand, whatever she said. And I'm leaving. And she had few dollars to her name and she headed into the city. She's going to make it now in the middle of the city. And her mom knew she had no plan and no chance really to make it on her own, particularly not with an attitude of rebellion like that. But her mom also knew she was too prideful to come back home. So after a few days of thinking about what to do, her mom decided she was going to go search for her daughter. But before she went, or on her way, she went into a local drugstore and she went into one of those machines where you get all the pictures taken of yourself, right? And mom went in with as much money as she could find around the house before she left. And she went into that photo booth and she took picture after picture after picture of herself. And she went into the city. Mom went into the darkest corners of that city to the places that she never dreamed she'd find herself. And she went into ladies' restrooms and she'd tape up that picture of her face. Anywhere she could see a mirror or a glass, she would tape a picture of herself. One night, her daughter, stumbling through an alleyway, 
She's been abused. She has seen some of the worst things in this life and experienced some of the worst things in this life since the time that she left home. She stumbles from that alleyway into the lobby of a hotel. She puts her hands down on a chair just to catch her breath, just to figure out what's next. And she looks up from that chair and there on mirrored glass in the bottom right-hand corner, she sees a picture of her mom. She takes that picture dumbfounded, just shaking her head. How did this get here? She takes a deep breath. She doesn't know why she does it, but she turns it over. And on the back, it reads, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. You can come home. You're never too far gone from the grace of God. That's the message we're taught from someone who understood it perhaps more than any of us how much he needed God's grace himself. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If you're here today and you would say, I have been resisting God for a long time. Maybe you're here today and you're hearing this message again and it's like you're hearing it for the first time and it's not because of anything that I've said or anything I've done, but rather there's a tug in your heart Can I tell you what that is? It's the spirit of God saying now's your moment to stop resisting, to stop kicking against the one who came and shed his blood for you. If you're here today and you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, would you just, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you just pray in your own words, God, I come before you right now, not anticipating this moment or this day, but I know that you're here with me. And I'm done resisting you. I'm done fighting against you. I surrender my life to you. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. That his blood was shed for me to cover my sins and my shortcomings. And I know that today, though I've been in some very dark places, that I was never too far gone from you. God, I give my life to you. Show me what it means to live out your grace every day from here on. If you're here today and in your own words you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, would you please take that Get Connected card you received when you walked in today. Take it and fill it out. Take it to our help center right out there in the atrium. We would love to have the opportunity to pray for you and help you get started on your journey with Jesus. If you're here today as a follower of Jesus, we read about the conversion of this man, but there's so much in how God has used Saul who became the Apostle Paul. He left so many things behind. So many past mistakes were dropped in those days. He, was, he went to some dark places. He did some dark things. Yet God had a plan and a purpose for his life. And God's got a plan and a purpose for your life today. If you're resisting him in any area, would you just surrender right now? Just surrender that you might be able to deliver his message in ways that you haven't before. God, thank you for your amazing grace-filled plan for us and that you were willing to go as far as was necessary to reach us, to save us. 
Jesus, as you call to us today, may we not resist you. May we turn our faces to obey you and to acknowledge you. Well, thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.